Father, we come before you desperate and in need of a miracle in our hearts to be able to love the things that you have commanded us, to hear the words that you have for us to hear and to delight ourselves in you. And so would you be with us today and give us eyes to see and ears to hear the wonderful things that you have for us in your word and help us to marvel in them, help for us to delight in them, help for us to treasure in them in ways that we could not do if your spirit had not been with us to give us grace. So would you strengthen us for this today? Would you be with me and give me words to say? May my words be clear. Guard me from error. And I pray that your preaching, the preaching of your word would go forth with power, that it would build up your people in faith and in joy. And most of all, Lord, would you be glorified through it, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, most of us are well aware of the dangers that are found in the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel, it promises you your best life now. These false teachers will promise you health and wealth. But our Lord told us what we can expect in this life. And he did not guarantee us ease or luxury. But instead, he told us that in the world, we will have tribulation, John 16, 33. So the sufferings of the righteous are far from being a foreign topic to the scriptures. And even our own experience would testify that our suffering is, is regular as God's people. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And so we know the error of the prosperity gospel. We know that it is not true and we know the danger of believing in it. So it seems maybe perhaps needless, but I'll say it all the same. Same, Beware of the prosperity gospel. You know it, but beware of it all the same. And yet this morning, I want to warn you of another danger that is perhaps far more subtle and even more dangerous to us because of its subtlety to us. And it just as well can make shipwreck of our faith. What I want to warn you of this morning is not the prosperity gospel, but what I actually want to warn you of is a gospel that does not promise you prosperity. Psalm 1 gives us a glorious promise. Speaking of the righteous man, right here in the heart of our psalm, the psalmist says in verse 3, in all that he does, he prospers. Now, I understand that none of us want to be associated with the prosperity gospel in any way, shape, or form. I, of all people, know that. For one, as a teacher, I sometimes get lumped into the bunch by unbelievers thinking, oh, you're just in it for your own selfish gain. So I don't want to be associated with these so-called preachers. And furthermore, my name is kind of unfortunate. I had a lot of nicknames based on my last name. My last name, for those of you who don't know, is Trosper. And when I was in college... People gave me this terrible nickname. They called me Prosperity Gospel. And I despised this nickname because I did not want to be associated with the Prosperity Gospel in any way, shape, or form. And I trust that you will not use that against me. But just because the word prosperity and other words that go along with it, like blessing, have been misused and abused, doesn't mean that we ought not to own it. 
This word is thoroughly biblical, prosperity that is, and so is blessing, and it's essential for us to have these words and understand them and own them if we're to have a right understanding of the gospel. Similarly, in even Jeremiah's day, there were false teachers who promised peace when there was no peace. Jeremiah 8.11, they have healed the wounds of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And yet we know that this word peace is a wonderful word and a wonderful concept for God's people to understand and to rest in. And so when the angels themselves came to those shepherds and said, glory to God on the highest and on earth, Peace among those with whom he is well pleased. These angels were declaring glorious truths that we need to understand. So just because they were misused in Jeremiah's day does not mean it is not for us to understand today because Christ has come so that sinners might have peace with God. Very similarly, even in our own day, we might be tempted to avoid the language of blessing and prosperity lest we be lumped in with these prosperity-preaching teachers who are no Christians at all. And yet we should not cast these words away lest we do away with the glorious good news that is ours. You see, I fear that there are some of us who know so much about what it means to suffer for Christ And all the while, we know little to nothing about the blessedness that is found in Christ. Some of us are driven more by our duty than our delight. Some of us are more mindful of our religious to-dos than the glorious gospel that brings to us good news. Understand this, blessings belong to God's people. And the promise and the covenant language that God gave to Abraham, he promised him blessings. And not only for him, but also through him, all the nations would be blessed. The promise of blessing is one of the great themes repeated some 50 times throughout the book of Deuteronomy. And even on the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord opens up with the Beatitudes, these blessings and promises that are given to his people. And so if we're to rightly understand the Psalms and all their reasons for rejoicing throughout this wonderful collection of songs, even in the midst of mourning, we need to understand the source of our blessedness. And I'd go even further to say, if we're going to understand the gospel, we need to rightly see that we are a people who have been blessed. So let us start Here in Psalm 1, at the beginning of the Psalms, we're going to be going through the Psalms this summer consecutively this time. We're going to go Psalm 1, Psalm 2, and so on and so forth through the Psalm throughout this summer. So let us open the Psalm starting at the very beginning of it in Psalm 1, 1. And it opens up like this, introducing us to a man who I will refer to throughout the sermon as the Psalm 1 man. It opens up like this. Blessed is the man. The Psalm 1, he He's described, the Psalm 1 man, he's described as being blessed, which is a, perhaps a difficult thing for us to understand, especially if we don't use the word very often. Maybe we avoid it, but, but we certainly don't use it often. And so let me just define it for us in case some of us don't understand what it means to be blessed. This word blessed simply means happy. Happy is what this word means. So when the queen of Sheba saw the riches of 
of Solomon and heard of his wisdom, she was breathless and exclaimed in 1 Kings 10, 8, happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Understand these two words, happy, happy. This is the same word that the psalmist opens up with when he says, blessed is the man. And so in Psalm 1, when it says, blessed is the man, we should understand what it's saying. It's saying, happy is this man. This is the, the theme of our psalm this morning, the happiness of the Psalm 1 man, the blessedness of this man. And it's not just the theme of Psalm 1. Happiness and blessedness is the theme of every person, whether they are a Christian or not. For every single person is on the constant hunt for happiness. Both the righteous and the wicked have this same thing in common. We are both driven by our delights. There are plenty of differences to, to be sure. And this psalm explores the differences between these, these two groups of people, the righteous and the wicked. But make no mistake, we are driven by what makes us happy. And so I assume that every one of us in here is on this hunt for happiness, for joy, for this blessedness. And so I will assume that you want to share in the Psalm 1 man's blessedness as well. And so to help us go through the Psalm, we're gonna, I'm going to give you three questions that we're going to ask. First of all, who is this blessed man? Who is this blessed man? And then after that, we're going to say, what makes him blessed? And then finally, how is this blessing possible? And there's three stanzas in the psalm, and those three stanzas, stanzas will help us go through these three questions. So let's answer the first question first of all. Who is the blessed man? It's simply not enough for us to know who he is, but the psalmist begins by telling us who he is not. Psalm 1.1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. What we see here is a threefold progression, and we're given a hint about the nature of sin when it takes root in man. That is to say, he goes from bad to worse. He's not content with just having counsel from the wicked, but eventually he will be identified even as being one of the sinners, and eventually he will even graduate to be one amongst the scoffers. And we see here what drives the man to seek this wisdom, this counsel, this way, this seat, this position. Well, he does so because he delights in his sin. All of us know this. None of us are driven by duty to sin, but why do we sin? We sin because we love it. We do the thing that we are enslaved to. If you were once enslaved to sin, you know what I'm talking about. You do it because you cannot not do it. The thief was not commanded to steal. He's commanded not to steal. But the thief goes on ahead and steals because he believes that through his theft, he will increase in his blessedness, in his happiness. So we see this of the sinner, the scoffer, the wicked. They love their sin. And so do those who take counsel with them and partake with them in their activities. 
But these, while these three lines certainly do have a progression to it, they all have this same thing in common from beginning to end. Each and every one of them oppose God and do not delight in him. That's why they're called wicked and sinners and scoffers. But the blessed man is not like them. The blessed man, he is different, for he is not like his mother Eve who listened to the counsel of the serpent, but instead he does not listen to the lies of Satan, but instead he listens to the the wisdom that is found in God's word. The blessed man is also different from Aaron, for he does not go along with the crowds of sinners who demand the worship of idols, but instead he crushes the idols and worships God alone. The blessed man is also different from Korah and his company, for he will not dare to speak evil against the Lord and his anointed, but only will bless and worship him, for he is God. So the blessed man, he, he does not conform to the patterns of the world. I think that's the big idea that we can see here in these threefold progression of who the blessed man is not. He is not like the world, but instead he is holy and set apart. It does not matter how popular the way of the world is, and it does not matter how mocked and brought down he might be if he opposes their way. He will not partake in it, and he will not bow down to any image that a king puts before him, no matter what it costs. So this is who the blessed man is not. Let us now turn to who he is. Psalm 1-2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Again, we notice here, hopefully, the the happiness, the blessedness of this man. is not just a future blessing, but here and now, he is happy in the delight that he has as he receives the law of the Lord, as he takes counsel from the one who knows what is good and tells him what is evil. So as opposed to taking the counsel of the wicked, he, he delights in receiving instruction from the Lord. And he is happy about it. The Psalm 1 man, he says with David about the law that it is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. You see, the greedy desires gold, the glutton would prefer a taste of honey, but the blessed man would much rather store God's word in his heart and savor God's word in his mind as he meditates upon it early in the morning and into the late night. The Psalm 1 man's blessedness is not found in his status before men. The blessed man, in fact, is often mocked along with Noah. The, bl- the blessed man here is not called blessed because he has an abundance of cattle. The blessed man might be even as poor as Ruth. The blessed man is not called blessed because he has his health. He might be as sick as Job. And the blessed man is not called blessed because he has 12 sons. He might be as childless as Abram. You see, the prosperity preachers, they'll offer this kind of happiness, this kind of prosperity that offers men the desires of their sinful flesh. But this is not the blessing that the Psalm 1 man has. His blessing is this. He loves the things that God loves. He delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day 
and night. This is the source of his blessedness. This is where his blessings are stored. And so we have to come to our second question now. What about this makes him so blessed? Well, the psalmist, he continues. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. So this is an analogy given to us. He's compared this Psalm 1 man. He's compared to a tree by streams of water. And he's helping us understand something that's really difficult for us to see because it's something we cannot see. Before we get into the imagery of this tree by water, understand the heart of this imagery and the heart of this entire Psalm. Right there in the center of it all, we are promised prosperity if you are, in fact, among the righteous. If you are blessed, it is owing to the fact that all that you do will prosper. This means that the work of his hands will not turn up empty. This means that the pursuit of his life will not end up in a pile of ashes. This means that when his life is done, he will be marked by these words, well done, thy good and faithful servant, for his works are good and prosperous. So the righteous man, he knows nothing about a wasted day. The righteous man, he knows nothing of work that is done in vain. For this promise is given to the righteous. All that he does, and all that he does, he prospers. Now to help us understand the prosperity that we're talking about here is this prosperity that we can't see with our eyes. We're given this picture of a tree that's planted by streams of water. And I hope you understand what's happening here. What he's talking about here is a tree whose roots go down deep and tap into a life source that is found outside of itself. This tree without the streams of water might be, might be fruitful in the seasons of plenty, but when there's a drought, if he is not planted by these streams of water, he will be fruitless and his leaves will wither. We certainly know this about our Washington trees. If you were to pluck up our Washington trees and plant them in the desert, they would not live. And we know this of our lawn come mid-July. If you cut off the source of water to your lawn, they will turn brown and die. All that is green and all that is prosperous will die if it is cut off from their source of life and strength. And so it is of the Psalm 1 man. If you cut yourself off from the source of life, you cut yourself off from all prosperity. And what is his source of life? It is the delight that he has in the law of the Lord. It is that law in which he meditates upon day and night that gives him strength, that gives him life, that guarantees his blessedness and prosperity. Isaiah 47 and 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people, of the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is what the blessed man has discovered. He has discovered something that is sure and steadfast, unchanging and dependable. He has found something that will endure for all time, that will give power to him. And so it is the source of his blessedness, the word of God, the law of the Lord. And so he delights in it, knowing that by it, he will prosper. And this is the effect of the word as it continues. These streams, they cause for the tree to yield fruit in its season. 
It causes the tree's leaf to not wither. Jeremiah expands upon the imagery here of the psalmist. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. So understand this, Christian. You know not to believe the prosperity gospel that teaches that you will not have hardship, for you will, our Lord guaranteed, you will have trouble, and yet all the same, you can be count blessed because you know where you stand. You stand on the word of God that is a rock that is not moved by the waves. You stand on the word of God that gives strength and nourishment like the streams of water that this Psalm 1 man is tapped into. And so hardships are not bad news for the Psalm 1 man. Even when great, the greatest hardships come his way, he is still counted blessed because God's word will strengthen him through it all. So it is of the righteous man in his tribulation. He even remains at peace because he is connected to the eternal source of life. You can understand why the farmer loves this tree. For this tree produces good fruit for the farmer to enjoy. And it's a beautiful sight as well as he looks out and sees the green leaves that are on it in season and out. But the blessedness of the, the Psalm 1 man is far more apparent when you compare him to the wicked who pursue their pleasures in their sin. In contrast to this tree, verse 4 says this, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So in comparison to the prosperity and the strength and the life found in the work of the blessed man, this wicked man, his works amount to nothing. This is the picture here of the farmer who is threshing the harvest. He's throwing up the seed and what goes away is the chaff because that chaff, it's useless. The farmer has no need of it. It will not feed him or his family. It will provide no strength. And so he throws up the seed of the wheat so that the wind might take away the chaff. So it is of the wicked man. His works will amount to nothing. And so when you compare it to the, to the wicked man, you see why it is that the righteous are called blessed. For their works will endure now, this leads us to the, the third and final question. How is this blessing possible? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, it would seem as if this psalmist is just out of touch with reality. It sounds as if the promise that the psalmist is offering is just about as empty as those prosperity preachers otherwise. Because life in the world, it shows us a completely different picture than the righteous who are like this tree planted by streams of water. The psalmist Asaph, he, he expands on this. He, he envied the wicked, he says. Listen to Psalm 73. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Skip ahead to verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked always at ease. They increase in riches. 
All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Is the psalmist out of touch with reality here in Psalm 1 when he says that the Psalm 1 man, this, this man is blessed and the wicked are not? Habakkuk asks the same question. He says this, you, he's talking to God, he's praying, you who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Not just Habakkuk, it's not just Asaph. Listen to Jeremiah. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Psalmist seems pretty out of touch with reality. So how is this possible? How is it possible for the righteous man to be counted blessed and happy when the wicked go from bad to worse and they do not pay the consequences for their evil? The psalmist tells us in verses five and six, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous for the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. The key to understanding the Psalm 1 man's blessedness and the wicked man's curses is not to look at them in this life, but to look at them beyond the grave to see what is found of their works. Our blessedness may not be seen on this side of heaven, at least not in its fullness, and it certainly will not be. The wicked is what we see today. We see them going from bad to worse and even getting away with it. And so it is, the wicked themselves, they love their sin because they believe they get away with it. They believe they prosper by it. You see, the wicked, they live by what they see. But this is not so for the righteous. For the righteous live by faith and not by sight. You see, the righteous consider the reproach of Christ in this life greater wealth than the riches of the world, for he is looking to his eternal reward, such was the case for Moses in Hebrews 11.26. And so our blessedness, our blessedness is not chiefly found here and now. We have foretastes of it, yes, that's to be sure, but our blessedness will be revealed on that last day when God judges the righteous and the wicked. He separates the sheep from the goats. Oh, I want this blessedness. And I hope you all desire this blessedness as well. And so this leaves us asking, how can we enjoy the happiness of the Psalm 1 man? How can we tap into this blessedness? Well, as we come to a conclusion, I wanna give you, before I tell you what the key is to tapping into this blessedness, I wanna give you three improper applications from Psalm 1. And these improper applications have to be avoided at all costs for these are the applications of the Pharisees. And you know how the Lord frowns upon the Pharisees, don't we? So this is the first improper application that I want us to avoid. First of all, the key to earning this blessedness is not found through earning your righteousness. 
You see, the Pharisee's logic follows as such. You don't want to be counted among the wicked, do you? You don't want to be like the chaff that is blowing in the wind, do you? Well, then you better be good. Kind of like that Santa Claus song, like he comes and he's checking it twice and he's finding out who's naughty or nice. And so, kid, behave so you don't get a lump of coal. This is the way the Pharisee thinks. You better be good. You better be on your best behavior if you wish to be righteous. If you wish to stand before God in the final judgment and be counted among the blessed Psalm 1 man. But if this is what you believe, you will be like the rich young ruler who asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know it from Matthew 19 when he asked Jesus this. And Jesus said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. So if we think we can be good and earn this righteousness, the righteousness of this blessed man, you are just flat out wrong. Psalm 14.3 tells us they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not even one. Well, the Pharisee, he thinks he's good. But our Lord told us, I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. For what is the Pharisee's righteousness to be compared to? Our Lord said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside might be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like the whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So if you want to be counted among the blessed with the Psalm 1 man, understand this, your good works are futile. They will be consumed and amount to nothing. So do not hear Psalm 1 and say, okay, I got to pull my act together if I want to be blessed. Here's the second wrong application, improper application for us this morning. And that is this, avoid sinners. We might think, well, after all, the psalmist did say that the blessed man doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked and stand in the way of sinners and sit in the seat of scoffers. And so doesn't that what it, it's not what it means. Avoid them. Don't be near them. Have nothing to do with them. Run from Nineveh. But you'll remember, this was the application of the Pharisees when they looked at our Lord and they saw this. Luke 15, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. I assume what they're applying there is a misunderstanding of what Psalm 1 is actually teaching us. You see, we might be tempted to try to flee the wicked for fear of them making us unclean. But all the while, we don't even realize the fact that we ourselves are sinners with them. And sure, there is... There is good wisdom in this, not being unequally yoked with unbelievers, and yet there is also great folly in running away from sinners. For no matter how far you run, there will always be a sinner with you because you're a sinner. This was the folly of Jonah. This was the folly of the Pharisees, and it is the folly that will cause God's people to neglect the Great Commission. 
1 Corinthians 5, Paul writes this. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he clarifies himself. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. What he's talking about here is not associating with brothers and sisters, so-called Christians who go on living in sin. That's what Paul's writing about here in 1 Corinthians. But he tells us here, no, you need to be in the world for our Lord has sent us into the world. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp to put it under a basket, but on a stand and give light to all in the house. So in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So do not avoid sinners and do not flee from Nineveh, but instead understand what the psalmist says. Psalm 1.1, look at it. Does it say, blessed is the man who walks not with the wicked, nor stands with the sinners, nor sits with the scoffers? Is that what it says? No. The psalmist says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. That is, he doesn't take his advice. He doesn't walk according to his wisdom. When the world says do this, he does not do it just because the world says so, but instead he is far more concerned with pleasing God. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. Understand what that means. He's talking about identifying with sinners, not standing with them in the grocery line. He says he doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. Not at all meaning avoiding those coffee shops full of sinners but he's saying, identifying with them in their mockery against God, as we'll see next week in Psalm 2. So don't avoid sinners, because that's not going to make you righteous. The third wrong way to apply this would be to dutifully read your Bibles. If you think duty is going to save you, you're mistaken. What is the great commandment? Is it to serve God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Once again, it is not. But it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is not duty we're talking about here. We're talking about delight. Having a heart that loves the things of God. Know this, our duty does not add anything to God. The God who made the world and everything in it being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needs anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Our duty adds nothing to God, for God in himself is sufficient. He needs nothing from us. And furthermore, do not think that he takes delight in your religious duties that are half-hearted and without delight. Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. So understand, God's great delight is this, when we delight in the law of the Lord when we actually love his commandments and do them and obey them. 
So if you're trying to serve God through your service, understand this, that service means nothing to him. If you're reading your Bibles morning and evening, meditating day and night out of duty and not delight, you are not among the righteous. For the blessed man is not marked by his meditation alone, but his delight, his love, his passion is in the law of the Lord. And it is that passion that bubbles up and overflows that cause for him to meditate on it day and night. Understand, it was the Pharisees too who also meditated on the law, but they completely missed the heart of it. If you meditate on the law out of duty, you will be no better than the Pharisees whose knowledge caused nothing but pride and puffed them up. And so our Lord once again said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected, neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These things you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out the gnat and swallowing the camel. At the beginning, I warned us of the danger of the prosperity gospel, but I hope you see there is just as much danger, if not greater, in the subtlety of believing in a gospel that is only leading us towards duty, to-dos, and not delight and good news. But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law, he meditates day and night. Let me give us one more illustration for how we might understand this. You know the difference, don't we, kids, between staying up late at night and studying for an exam compared to staying up late at night and reading our favorite comic book or playing a video game or binging a, a show that we love? It's all the difference. It's not because it's day and night. The difference is duty and delight. The former is done out of duty because they have to, lest they fail their exam, while the latter, he loves what he does and he will do it even if it costs him his sleep. So it is with the Psalm 1 man. He delights in the law of the Lord and this delighting causes him to meditate day and night. And so let us now look at three proper applications for Psalm 1. First and foremost, above all else, delight yourself in the one who is truly blessed. Look at Psalm 1, 1 and 2 once again. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Understand, there is only one man who actually did this. There is only one man who did not do what the wicked said they should do. There is only one man who does not stand with the sinners. There is only one man who does not sit with the scoffers, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we realize that the Psalms and even the law and all the prophets are pointing to him, all of a sudden, oh, it's delightful. It's delightful when we see that the law is not given for us to do in order to earn a righteousness, but instead the law points us to the one who is righteous and then gives us his righteousness at no cost to ourselves. Oh, what a wonderful thing to meditate on day and night. What a wonderful thing to hear on. What a wonderful thing to savor and taste and think on every single day and hour and minute and second that our Lord has given us his righteousness. 
And so we delight ourselves in the law, yes. We certainly delight ourselves in the commands of God, yes. But this is what follows when we delight ourselves in God who changes us, who gives us a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone, who writes the law on our hearts. Here's the second application, and it's for those of us who do not delight in the law of the Lord nor in the one to whom is truly blessed. If we do not delight in Jesus and his word, ask God for joy in his word. I'm talking about prayer. I'm talking about pleading before him on your knees and begging him to give you joy in this glorious good news so that you might share in the blessedness of the Psalm 1 man who has received favor from God. For some of us, it might look like us needing a new heart altogether because we have never, never savored Christ. And yet for others still, some of us are perhaps in a season of of spiritual depression. We once loved the Lord. We once had a desire to know him more. And yet today it's hard to wake up, hard to open the Bible, hard to to think on the things of God because, because we've grown cold and disinterested in him. The first love that we once had has now become lukewarm. And if that's you who feels this way, know that you are not alone. For even David, the man after God's own heart, prayed, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So make this your prayer if you are not delighting in God, in his word. Ask the Lord to restore unto you the joy of your salvation. And know this, the Lord has given us this promise. The Lord says that he will give his spirit to those who ask for he is like a good father who knows how to give good gifts. And so if you fathers who are evil know how to give your children good gifts, certainly your father knows how to give you, his children, good gifts as well. And so ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find a knock and the door will be opened to you. If you are not delighting in God, ask him and he will give you the desires of your heart. And then finally, if you do get to that point where you have joy in Christ, joy in his word and his righteousness, and you long, you hunger and thirst for righteousness, then let your delight drive you to meditating on the law day and night. Here we're not talking about duty. We're talking about joy and blessedness and love for the things of God that only he can give us by making us born again. Understand, if you are not meditating on the word, it is owing to the fact that you are not delighting in God. C.S. Lewis sums it up well. We probably know this quote by now. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Understand this, at the very beginning, Mark said that we are distracted people. It is true, we are very distracted, probably more today than ever. 
So if we want to delight ourselves in God, part of this might mean we need to put off some of the distractions and repent and ask God to fill us with a longing and a hunger and thirst for him and his promises and his word and his righteousness above all else. But if you delight in him, oh, there are countless ways that you might meditate on his law. You can do so by reading the word. You can do so by reading good books. You can do so by meditating and memorizing scripture. You can do so through fellowship with others who are gonna sharpen you as iron sharpens iron. But even the Psalms themselves give us a particular way to meditate upon the law. The Psalms themselves, they're meant to be sung. And so it is, Paul picks up on the very same theme of of meditating day and night. He says this in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Listen to this, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. And so even now, as we go through the psalms over the course of the summer, let us meditate on it. And even as we now turn to sing of the great love that Christ has for us, let us delight in what he has done. Fellow Christian, you are blessed. So enjoy it, delight in it, for that blessing belongs to you. Let's pray. Father, only you can give life where there is death. Only you can raise the dead. And so even today, would you do this work in our hearts Cause for us to rejoice in that which we are numb to otherwise. Cause for us to love the things that we once hated. Help us to love you and your word far more than we love anything else in this world. Help for us to find this treasure in the hidden field so that we might sell all that we have with joy so that we might obtain the field and the treasure therein. Lord, would you help us discover this? Give us your spirit. Open our eyes so that we might be blessed and so that you would be glorified, we ask in Christ's name.